the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. I am going to begin reading with verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Great Commission. We're going to look at doing missions with Jesus. Beginning with verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All powers given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Well, it's important for us to know that missions or world evangelism is important, and it is all throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, and certainly in the ministry of Jesus in the gospel. If a church is in a denomination then usually a certain amount of their monies are required to go to headquarters, and a certain amount of that is allotted to spreading the gospel. If a church is not involved with the denomination, then it's up to that local church just to still ensure that they support missions. Every local church should be involved with missions. We've always been involved with missions because you've always had a missionary pastor. But then it's also good, though it's not a rule in Scripture, every family should have individual missionaries that they themselves support. People that are involved with everything from feeding the poor, the hungry, whether it's somebody who's going overseas to teach literacy to people or translate the Bible. It's always good to know that you give a few dollars out of your pocket to help support people we're trying to promote and advance the kingdom of God. If it was important to him, it should be important to us because it's part of the heart of world evangelism and the gospel message has to be told. When we look here at verse 16, it speaks about these 11 disciples. There were 12, but one has taken his own life. But think of the characters amongst the 11. You have James and John, called the sons of thunder. They were ready to call down fire on the village in Samaria because they refused to accept Jesus walking through the village. Think about Andrew. He was a former disciple of John the Baptist who heard John the Baptist speak about Jesus. He left John the Baptist to follow Jesus, spent the day at Jesus' home, and then afterwards was so convinced that he was the Messiah that he went and found his brother Peter, and brought him and said, we have found the Messiah. He introduced Peter to Jesus. And then, of course, you know how Peter advanced in his relationship with the Lord. And he became part of that significant three. Whenever Jesus would go pray or something like that, it would be Peter, James, and John that would be taken further with him. Andrew was a man that didn't mind the fact that his brother came to know the Lord later but yet his brother advanced further than he did, it seems, in that relationship. Well, Peter, of course, Peter always had to say the first thing that came to his mind. He was impulsive. Philip was a man that walked with Jesus for 
a long period of time, and even he said, Jesus, please show us the Father. How can we, how are we going to be able to find him? How will we know the way? And we know the story of Thomas, how Thomas said to the disciples after the resurrection, unless I see the holes in his hands, in his feet, and in his side, I won't believe. So here are 11 imperfect men and women, flawed individuals who were discipled by the perfect Christ. This is a church with Jesus as their pastor. Why would we be discouraged? After all this time these folks follow the Lord, then why would we ever look for, look for a flawless church? They don't exist. They're simply people with failures, weaknesses, and infirmities that walk with God and have a heart for him. However, after the resurrection, the angel had told them Jesus is going to meet with them in Galilee. Galilee was a special place because in the Old Testament it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what the prophet called it. It was a place of diversity. Different kinds of people lived there. And Jesus began his ministry there where there was a lot of diversity. So there were different nationalities, people of different backgrounds. And we know how important that is in preparation for sharing the gospel. Now, you probably don't think about it, but there's a lot more diversity out here in Thera County than you probably would imagine. And on one occasion when I took some youth, I called it a missionary trip. They weren't too impressed in the beginning. We went to a cemetery. And we were walking around looking at all these names on these stones and of course, some of these names had many syllables, and I didn't even bother with mangling the names. I would say to them, okay, now how do you pronounce that, and who are these people? And they said, well, that was so-and-so. They used to run this business in town, and then they go on and tell me a little bit about these folks. And, and before you knew it, before we finished what we were doing, we had, we had marked out anywhere from 16 to 17, 18 different nationalities in the cemetery. So, so think about your own background this evening. Just by a show of hands, if you have a Scotch background in your heritage, raise your hand. Anybody have any Scots? How about Irish? Anybody got any Irish? How about German? Wow, looky there. Does anybody have any Slovak or Bohemian ancestry background? See? Any African? Yeah. Okay, All right. So, so when when people say little things on television like the the places out there in the heartland are not really diverse at all, it's not true. It just so happens that you can have anywhere from twenty five to thirty five different ethnic groups out here. They just all happen to have light skin. That's all. But it's still diverse. And this is where Jesus began with his disciples as he began to teach and preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And he's, he told them to meet them in a certain place, and that was on a mountaintop. The mountain becomes the appointed place. The appointed place is where they will see Jesus. All of us have these, these moments in our life where we have appointments with God. When you came to know Jesus as your Savior, that was your mountaintop experience, but it was not your only mountaintop. There may be different stages in your Christian life where you feel like I'm divinely compelled to be there. 
Now, we all know we should go to church every week, midweek services and so on, and we know it's in conformity with the word. The word says, let us not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is so much the more as we see the day approaching the coming of the Lord. So every time we come through those doors on the Lord's day, we know we're in the will of God. That is what God has said that we should do. However, there are times when you don't always want to go to a particular meeting or service, be it down inside here, there can be a voice sometimes that says, you need to be at that meeting down in Wichita. You need to be at that meeting in that particular place. And when God has given you an appointment, it's up to you to make sure that you're there. <clears throat> because when you're in the appointed place, that's where you're really going to see the Lord and you're going to receive something from God. There are a lot of people who go to church, they don't receive anything from the Lord. They go to special meetings, they don't receive anything. Everybody else can be blessed by what's going on, but certain people, they won't receive anything. They don't see it as a divine appointment. Well, verse 16 says, this was a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And verse 17 says, and that is where they saw him. If we're going to get a glimpse of the Lord, we need to be in place. And the things that we see on that mountain very often lead us to worship him in a greater way. And that's why it says when they saw him, they worshiped. Him. They didn't need a band. They didn't need a praise team. They didn't need a choir. There was nobody up there with a violin or a trombone. These people simply began to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that in your car, in the bed, at the dinner table, walking the dog. You can do that when you're cutting the grass. You can do that when you're walking through the park. You can have a wonderful relationship with the Lord where you're saying, Father, I love you, adore you, I esteem you, I magnify you, I lift you up. You're wonderful, God. That is what worship is all about. So never limit your worship to the presence of a neighbor, a relative, a musician, a singer. Never allow your worship of the Lord to be confined by all of these other things that you think you need. All you need is a heart that is aflame with affection for God. That's it. That's it. In my early days of traveling and preaching as a teenager, the only thing I took with me was a Bible and a hymn book. That's it. If I went into some of these primitive Baptist churches in uh, North Carolina where they didn't allow pianos and stuff, all I needed was a Bible and a hymn book. I could sing it a cappella and have a good time. If I went into some of those real upbeat churches like the United Church of God, a Pentecostal church down in the uh, south, if I walked into there and and, and these folks that had the musician didn't show up that day. I still had my hymn book. I could lead in a song. Didn't matter. So in your relationship with God, worship is something that's personal. It's private. It's individual. But in the presence of God, it's something that pleases God. He is happy when you're telling him thank you. When you're showing gratitude to him. It pleases him. So all of us need an appointed place. When, when you had a difficulty in your Christian life and you did not think you would find an exit and it was just between you and God and you were looking for someone to encourage you but you didn't want to tell anybody all about your problem, you'll find that sometimes God in his word will speak directly to you. So your, your devotional time becomes your appointed time. 
Your bedroom will become your appointed place when you're reading the scripture right there in the in, in the bedroom and you're, you're talking with God. Sometimes if if you're passing through a, a test or some kind of a trial of your faith, then you'll find that that becomes an appointed place where God transforms it into a mountaintop. And it's there you'll be able to see Jesus in a greater way. That's where the miracles happen. The supernatural things occur. So we all need these kinds of moments in our life, and when they happen, as I said, you look back and it inspires you to worship God because you see him in a way you've never seen him before. So let me give an illustration. When I was praying about getting out of the military, didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I did know I wanted to do ministry. But of course, if you're going to do ministry, you've got to have money, you've got to live, you've got to travel. But, but I was praying, and I knew that <clears throat> there was a school in Jordan where they taught Arabic. So Arabic 25 years ago, just like it is today, was a, a money language. And I had a friend who was in Saudi Arabia with me, and there in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, right on the Red Sea, I'd started three underground churches, and this gentleman had helped me with one, and he was a, a CIA guy, but he was a recruiter also for the National Security Agency, NSA, more secretive than the CIA. Once he learned that I was interested in going to study Arabic, then he said, well, if you're going to do that, why don't you consider coming back into government service for us? Well, the whole time I lived in Jordan studying Arabic, the people in the underground churches that I helped start, they supported me. They provided me the monies that I needed while I was in school. Studied Arabic there and so on and so forth. But while I was in Turkey, in order to get to this school, I had to find it first. And the only thing I knew was that there was a man there that had a school. That's it. I knew his name and I didn't know anything else. And so I had kind of made a deal with the Lord. I had four days off. Marine Corps, they call that a 96, 96 hours. And so I said, Lord, I'm going to fly from Istanbul, Turkey, to Amman, Jordan, and I've got four days to try to find this man, and I'm going to believe you're going to help me find a needle in a haystack. That's what I did. I flew there, got there on a Friday evening. The embassy was closed, so I couldn't go to the section of American interest to f try to find out the addresses of Americans living abroad in Jordan. Marines picked me up, took me to the Marine house. I passed the night fasting and praying, had my Bible out reading it, hoping God would talk to me. And then I fell asleep with the Bible on the floor. And while I was asleep, I had a dream. In the dream, I was talking with someone and they said to me, you got here just in time. The director of the school, he's getting ready to leave on a six-month furlough. So that was what I had in the dream. So I woke up, and I said, what in the world is that? It said, you got here just in time. I'm getting ready to leave on a six-month furlough. I didn't know what that meant. But it was in my heart to call a lady named Angie who lived in Izmir. Izmir in the Bible is called Smyrna, the book of Revelation. So I called Angie. I said, Angie, I, I am over here in Jordan, and I'm trying to find a man that I know has an Arabic school here. And, and for some reason... I just feel like I need to call you. Do you know anybody that's involved with this? Well, she had left America years ago and come to Turkey to establish a place for orphaned Muslim children. She arrived in Turkey with nothing but a backpack. 
and they bought a big, something like a Victorian-style home, and she was just feeding and taking care of all of these stray Turkish kids. Well, I got her on the phone, and she said to me, well, Daryl, it's interesting. I, I do know somebody that went through the school. I can give you their number. I said, I'd, I'd appreciate it. And so when she gave me the number, I called the lady. I said, ma'am, my name is Daryl Sutton. I'm a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. I'm here trying to learn about this school that George Kelsey has. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm wondering if you might be able to help me get in contact with this gentleman. And she said, well, you got here just in time. He leaves tomorrow morning, going on a six-month furlough back to the United States. Oh, okay. Well, she gave me the number. I called Dr. Kelsey. I said, sir, my name is Daryl Sutton. I'm a sergeant in the Marine Corps. I live in Istanbul, Turkey. I'm not part of any denomination or any kind of missions group, but I, I, I'd love to be able to come to this school and learn the Arabic language if you have me. He said, well, young man, you caught me just in time. I'm getting ready to leave tomorrow morning, going home for six months. Come on by the house. I had the driver take me over there, and we made all the arrangements for me to come to school. But when I got to the end of that and I, and I heard what he said and heard what the lady said, then I thought to myself, oh my goodness, God showed me that in the dream. This has to be God leading me. So that became a mountain for me and I realized that was an appointed place. And these kinds of things happen for, to you also. C consider, had you not been in that particular place where you were at that particular time, you may not have met your spouse. You may not have met a very good friend that became close to you. You may not have acquired that job, been blessed with that car. You may not have ended up uh, moving to that particular town or moved back to a particular town. So many things went into rearranging and arranging your steps. A lot of this has to do with the hand of God working behind the scenes even when you don't know he's moving. The point in place. So verse 17 says, it's there you see him and you worship him. That's why when we come to the house of God, we should really be inspired to worship God because we realize this is a supernatural life. There's nothing mundane about being a Christian. God does a lot of things for people if they'll serve him. But verse 17 also says in the final three words there, but some doubt it. And that's true. You always have people that are skeptical. God can manifest himself and show himself to be real, but there will always be people saying, well, no, I, I don't believe it. They'll hear a story like I just told, and they'll say, well, you know, that, that, that sounds nice, but I just don't believe God moves like that. And my answer is, well, it really doesn't make a difference whether you believe it or not. I was there when it happened, so I guess I ought to know. See? And that's the same with you. If somebody says, I don't believe in good old-fashioned Heartfelt religion. I don't, I don't think you can sense and feel the presence of God when your life is changed. You ought to just let him know. It doesn't matter what you believe. My salvation is real and true. I know what happened to me when he saved me. I know what happened when he moved into my life. It's impossible for somebody as big and as infinite as God to move into your heart and your life and you not know it. Impossible. If I come to your house and move in, I guarantee you'll know it. Yeah. You're going to try to tell me God came in, comes into a person's life, forgives all of their sins, lifts every burden, takes away their sorrows, and gives them joy, and then they didn't know what happened? No, no I, I don't think that happens at all. Verse 18 then, Jesus came and spake. Notice, the, the unbelief of the ones on that mountain did not muzzle the Lord Jesus. He still had something to say to the people that would believe. 
He said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, so there's no place in the sky, no place on the earth, no place in the depths of the sea where you can go where Jesus doesn't have power. That's why back in the late 60s, when uh, man first went to the moon, and, and, and they were orbiting the moon, and they had that first transmission of the, the man reading from out in space, down here on planet Earth, he read Genesis chapter 1. You know why? Because he knew God had power even out there. See, out there. So all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. That is what we need to know. That's the foundation upon which we're going to do missions. This is why we're able to do missions. And in verse 19, he says, go. It's possible now to go because I realize, realize there's no place on this earth I can go where he doesn't have power. I can go everywhere. He has power. And go is an imperative. That's a command. And go is what we must do. Now you can go in prayer. You can go around the world, pray for the nation. I, I like to tell the story years ago when uh, Mark Felker was still here in the church. And Mark decided one day he wanted to have a prayer meeting with me. He just wanted to know how I prayed and all these different things. So we came out here one day and we both got down here and I was on my belly as I like to pray on my face and everything. And, and, and I just started praying and I started praying for the, for the nations of the world. Now you got to understand there are more than 235 nations on this planet and I just started praying for them all one by one and for different cities and for people that I knew in these different places. So about an hour and a half or two hours later when I got to the end of my prayer and I heard snoring. And, and Mr. Mark had, had, had gone to sleep. And he, he, said, he said, do you pray like that often? I said, I do when I start praying for the nations and even sometimes when I start praying for people. When I start calling your names and I start praying for you and praying for your families and praying for your kids. And, and I realize that in prayer I can go anywhere I want to go. I can come into your house through prayer. I can enter into relationships that are fractured by prayer. And you can do the same thing. That is what missions is all about. So sometimes you can go in prayer, but if you don't feel compelled to go to another town, to another city, to another country, you can still support those who do go. So everything we do for, for the Lord uh, consists of finances. People will always say, well, all the church does is talk about money. Well, that's all farmers talk about. That's all mechanics talk about. That's all doctors talk about. If you don't believe it, go to the hospital and wait till your bills start coming. Yeah, that's, all, that's all everybody talks about. There's nothing you can do in this world that, that, is, that involves crossing borders and going to different places that doesn't require money. So as a Christian then, what we do helps support people who are overseas or here in America, and we want to try to make sure that when that little boy or little girl gets down to pray and says, Father, could you make sure that mom and dad have food enough for us and the family, that we put something in their pocket so those prayers don't go unheeded. God uses people like you. God uses people like me to be the answer to other people's prayers. It's a powerful thing. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach. That implies somebody has learned, somebody has been listening, somebody has learned properly in order to, to teach all nations. And the word nations has to do with ethnic groups, nationalities. 
You know where, where evangelism begins? It begins with you shaking hands with the neighbor across the fence. It begins with you shaking hands with the one that lives across the road from you out there in a rural, in a rural area. That's where it begins. Evangelism begins with you realizing that the bank teller and the grocery store clerk are not just the bank teller and grocery store clerk, but they are souls that may be lost and they need God. And you share it with them. It's not a cousin. It's not an uncle. It's somebody that needs the Lord. And the scripture here says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Well, if you have to go to the nations, that means you're going to encounter different customs. Cultures, beliefs, that makes it different. But Jesus knew about it. People say, why do you go to different communities in the heartland to preach the gospel? Why does anybody go to different communities in America to preach the gospel around the world? Why don't we just leave people alone and let them believe what they want to believe? It's not our business to go around the world and change people's beliefs. According to Jesus, it is our business. He said, go into all the world and teach the nations. And he knew then that there were customs out there that are different than ours. Somebody has to go talk to the Muslims. Because even right now, it's about 3 o'clock in the morning or so over there. And, and there'll be people that are sitting down looking at a video. And on that video, they're watching as a car drives into a uh, military outpost and then explodes. Or they're watching somebody walk up to a military outpost and explode. And so as they're looking at that, they're preparing their mind for their own mission. And then one day, a gentleman's going to come in there and say, okay, today is your day, get ready. Your assignment is given to you. You're going to go to such and such place. They get up, and they write a long letter to their family saying, Mom and Dad, I know I've disappeared, and you haven't heard from me, but I decided to give my life in the path of jihad. And I hope that my death brings glory to Islam and honor to you and all of our family. Then they'll take their green bandana or blue one and put it around their head, and then they'll pray their prayers, Allahu Akbar, and go through all of the cleansing ceremonies they need to go through, then they'll put their bomb vest on, then they'll put their robe or their jacket atop it, and then they'll go to some bus stop and stand in the midst of all of these people who, for the most part, look just like him, aside from the fact he or she is Arab. But if it's a cold day, everybody's got a big coat on. And so you have grandmothers out there talking to one another about what they did over the weekend. There'll be soldiers getting ready to return to their base after spending the weekend home with family. There'll be little teenagers there catching the bus because they don't want to walk all the way to school. And they're talking about what they did over the weekend. And, and nobody's paying attention to the young person that's standing over there by themselves with the bulky coat because everybody else has a bulky coat on because it's cold outside. Then they get on the bus. Go to several stops, a few get on, a few get off, and then somewhere in between the stop, the young man stands up and shouts, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. By the time the people turn around and look, see what's happened, there's a ball of fire with the explosion, blood, bone fragments, skin goes in a thousand directions. The bus jumps up about six feet off of the ground, and then pretty soon, within 30 seconds, there's nothing but screaming and horror as people are running to see what's going on. And then the ambulance and medical personnel show up, and, and folks are in tears, and, and people are on their knees crying, and nobody's paying attention to the fact that a half mile away on top of a building, there's somebody videotaping it all as a recruitment tool for the next young people, next group of young people. Jesus knew what was out here in this world when he said go. And he knew that people 
would die for the faith. But folks, people still have to go. Last trip my wife and I took to East Africa, we told you the very night we were there, the night we went down, went to sleep in the bed, our host pastor, seven other people were assassinated middle of the night. Somebody's got to go. Still have to go. You say, well, why does it have to be you? It has to be the one that feels divinely compelled inside to go. That's the one that has to go. You say, I could never do that. No one's asking you to. But the one that felt divinely compelled years ago to come to Nebraska, as I did, I'm the one that came. See? And when you felt led to leave and go wherever you went for a number of years before you came back, you left because you felt compelled to leave. And now you're back. You went away. Stay. Different custom. Got a young man who's a part of World Ministry Fellowship, and he's in Malawi. Malawi has a lot of customs that are different than what we have here. In Nebraska, in Malawi, when a person dies on the anniversary of their burial, the family goes back, and as long as they can find physical remains, they'll take the body out of the ground, they'll dress the bones in new, clean, fresh garments, put the body on a cot, and then, and then carry the cot up and down Main Street in that village so that the deceased can see all the new things that have taken place in town. Different? I think so. But that's what they do. The Bible says go and teach all nations. How will they know not to do that if we don't go to them? Different things, you see? Different things. Well, he says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism implies the presence of water. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. John chapter 4 verse 1 says Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. Acts chapter 8 tells us about how Philip was with the Ethiopian eunuch. They climbed down out of the chariot, got into the water, and the eunuch was baptized. So baptism is important. It's a beautiful outward sign of what God has done in the heart. And each time I've seen it in the book of Acts, the person being baptized had some idea why they were being baptized, and they had some idea of what the gospel means, you see. The triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. So you teach people what you have learned. It's impossible for a missionary to give away what they do not have, and it's impossible to teach knowledge you don't possess. The more we know, the more we can give. And this is what people do all around the world in our different denominations, in our different independent movements. And if you have some idea of the foundation and the origin and the background of different movements, then you'll understand why it is they teach what they teach. You see? If you go to the different Baptists, learn the difference between the American Baptists and the Southern Baptists and the Missionary Baptists. Three of them are as different as morning, noon, and night. But they all believe in immersion, baptism, and Baptists, by and large, they love to preach salvation. I mean, they'll get you saved every week. They'll, they'll lead a tree to salvation if they could get that tree saved. You understand that? The Methodists, Free Methodists, Wesleyan, those are holiness groups. 
Then you have the United Methodist Church. Then you have your African Methodist Episcopal Church. If you have some idea of the backgrounds of their beliefs, you can understand their approach to God and their approach to the Word of God and why they teach certain traditions. Same thing with Presbyterian Church of America, Presbyterian Church of the USA, United Reformed Church, Dutch Reformed Church, Swiss Reformed Church. Well, is the Lutheran Church, Wisconsin Synod, or Missouri Synod, or ELCA. And there are about ten other ones that I know of. Not to mention the full gospel churches. Is it, is it word of faith? Is it charismatic? Is it apostolic? Is it prophetic? Is it Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Church of God, Foursquare? Is it apostolic Trinitarian, apostolic Unitarian, and so on and so forth? Once you learn the, the emphasis that are in a particular movement, then you can understand why they're teaching. And usually it's that emphasis, that emphasis that they take into missions, into the uttermost parts of the world. We want to emphasize the gospel. And we want to emphasize the, the presence and power of, of, of Jesus. Some of the best moments I had in my life was, was just learning from, you know, older preachers and people that love God. A number of you in here have a connection with Oral Roberts University, but, but think, think of how different your life is because of that connection with Oral Roberts. My wife told me when she went to ORU, those chapel services changed her life, just changed her life. Different speakers that they had coming through there. Because even though she had had good pastors in her life and people that loved the Lord, she was just learning stuff she had never seen because these were people coming in from different places, going around the world or just working and laboring in the area, whether it was Joyce Meyer or Bill Wilson, whoever it was. But all of them had something to give, and they all gave something differently because they can't give what somebody else had. You can only give what you have. But it was powerful, you see, the way it changed them. Well, my, my own pastors, uh, Joseph Frano, uh, used, used to teach in that early morning service in the, the, uh, the gospel tent that A.A. Allen had when he traveled all across America. Back in the 40s and 50s, I sit in my pastor's office and hear these stories and Oh, my, just what astound me. I love when he tell the story about when his mother was an older lady and, and, and was pregnant, and she had a tumor in her belly, and, and she, the tumor was so big you thought she was pregnant. She went to a Catherine Kuhlman meeting in Pittsburgh. And in that meeting, Catherine Kuhlman, he said he was sitting right next to his mom as a little boy. He said Catherine Kuhlman preached and then stopped and pointed up there in the balcony and said somebody's been healed of the cancer as they're standing there right now. He said he looked at his mom and she's passing that cancer, running down her leg, up, up there, see? totally healed by the, by the power of, of the Lord. Now, my own dad, who certainly was no Christian, he'd take my great aunt, who was a, a holiness pastor, holiness preacher, and he'd take her to Pittsburgh to sit in these Catherine Kuhlman meetings. And he said he'd see the, the wheelchair section. And then he'd see that stretcher section. And, and this is a sinner talking. He said he'd see these people getting up and, and these people healed and people clapping and people screaming. Didn't convert him. But something was going on because he acknowledged that something was going on. When, when I was in Baton Rouge and and was down there, Jimmy Swaggart became a minister down there, was preaching in the church, preaching in the chapel in the Bible college, which is where I met that beautiful, beautiful bride of mine. And um, I got to where I was on a study in the word, that radio program. 
we take different subjects and then just talk about it with, with the different panelists that were on there. But where I lived in the apartment buildings was across the street from the church, and it's a pretty big area. It's like a half a mile or so from the apartment building, walking across the bridge, going over to the church. And I would start walking at a certain time, and right about when I'd hit that end of the bridge and I'd hit that pavement to go over there to that radio station to be on the program, Jimmy would be passing by with that Mercedes Benz, and he got to where he'd stop and then pick me up and then drive me right on over there to the radio station. And you better believe as soon as I got in that car, I wasn't asking anything about that car. I was asking about his old crusades and his evangelism and the meetings that he had. What, do you, what was I doing? Trying to learn. All the years that we were on the board at Hilton Sutton World Ministries, I didn't sit around talking with him about prophecy. If I flew down to his house and, and spent the night there, I was asking him about what it was like when he preached under the tent back in the 40s and 50s. I was asking him about what it was like having a grandpa that was a Methodist preacher who got filled with the Holy Spirit and had a revival so great in Dallas, Texas, that along the highway they even have a national mar state marker there acknowledging the revival that took place there. I wanted to hear about all of that. And I'd say, tell me about going to the Ritchie Tabernacle. Because in Houston, Dad Ritchie and his family, all of his sons were preachers. And Raymond T. Ritchie was one of the great preachers of the 20s, 30s, and 40s and traveled around America and had a, a miracle ministry. And he'd tell me about sitting in that tabernacle and all along the wall, there'd be crutches. And they, they, they pinned up there on that wall all of these old makeshift wheelchairs that people had had and the testimonies, people being made whole. That's what interested me. The, the, the times where I sat with him in seminars when he taught on Bible prophecy, I enjoyed all of that. I, I, I I, I learned from that. The conferences that I preached from him, preached with him, I should say, I learned from those. But I was interested in learning about these other things because of what I do in traveling and doing missions. You see, preaching about God. In the same way, so many of these individuals have given so much of that to me. Then when I get up to preach, so much of that just comes out of me when I share. Because I never want anybody to think that Christianity is a boring religion. This thing is fun. Wow. I wish you could have saw a pastor preaching in Plainville on the prodigal son and seeing folks under conviction and weeping and crying. Grown men, farmers, and people that, you know, these folks come in there, they're like cowboys, stiff and stern. But in a 35-minute period, God's able to touch your heart and deal with folks. So we thank God that we get to do what we do, and we get to do it together, because I couldn't do it if I didn't have you anyhow. How many of you know you can't be a shepherd without sheep? Some people have tried it, though. doesn't work well. You've got to have sheep. You have to have people that love God. Come on, let's stand. If God has your heart and has my heart, he has my wallet, he has your pocketbook. Churches that spend an, an enormous amount of time talking about money do so because they don't really know how to teach people to give. 
A penny out of every dime, a dime out of every dollar, a dollar out of every ten, ten out of every one hundred, a hundred out of every thousand belongs to him. The tithe belongs to him. We don't even include that in our budget. That, that just goes to him. We operate on 90%. The tithe goes to God. But then along with the tithe, sometimes they're offering to bless people, to help people. And, and those make it possible to help missionaries, to feed hungry people. Somebody's house burns down. People want to give an offering to support them. Always remember that when you're doing your uh, business for the king. There's what's yours, there's what's his. Always render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. And the windows of heaven will always be open. I want to pray for you and just ask God bless you. Father, when we think about how you blessed each of these families that are here this evening, every one of us, in some way or another, is an evangelist called to share the good news you've committed to us a ministry and a word of reconciliation this week we're going to come in contact with people that need to know the gospel and when the occasion presents itself lord fill our mouths with wisdom meanwhile father we think about those that do serve you on foreign fields or those that travel across america and campers and trailers they have their families living in them as they they travel as ministers or evangelists. Father, we want to be able to bless those that have needs also. So as you have given to us, we want to be able to give and support them. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, everyone said, Amen, Amen. Amen.